Well, thank you for joining us on this incredible Sunday evening, about to turn spring, amen, which means it's going to rain tomorrow, of course. Spring showers bring May flowers and all of those things. The Lord is indeed good to us. Finally got the rain we so desperately need here. and We need to remember to thank the Lord for it. You turn in your Bibles tonight to Acts chapter 20. We've reached the two-thirds mark here in this book. We're covering roughly uh, a chapter an evening as we journey through the book of Acts. The second letter that was written by Dr. Luke that explains how the gospel went from Jerusalem ultimately to Rome to the uttermost parts of the, the earth and now Paul's final journey begins here in Acts chapter 20. He's going to take his journey from Jerusalem. This is his third missionary journey. It's his farewell address. Uh, He's going to be arrested. Uh, He's going to take the voyage to Rome, and ultimately he will give his life for the cause of the gospel. And so Acts chapter 20 is a turning point. Because it really marks the the gospel reaching out to the uttermost parts. We've seen it go to the Gentiles. It's now going to begin to spread beyond uh, the bounds of what we would call the Middle East. And it's going to eventually go to Europe. It'll move on into Asia, from Asia Minor. And we begin that journey tonight in chapter 20. And so would you pray as we dig into the word tonight? Pray that God would bless us. Father, we are so grateful that we are able to be here tonight and to study your word. Lord, no threat. Uh, Our lives are not at risk. God, we're not likely to be forced out of this building and out into the street. Uh, Lord, we won't be stoned. We won't be shipwrecked. God, the only journey we'll have will be back to our homes that have running water and heat Father, generally beds and places to lay our heads. So we are blessed as a people and pray that in that comfort, Lord, uh, you would speak to us through the example of this great apostle. His life lived with reckless abandon for you without fear for his own life. Pray that we would have that same type uh, of exuberance, Lord, towards the things that you call us to. Would we live our lives with that same abandon? So bless us as we study. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Acts 20. And after the uproar had ceased, so as draws our attention to the riot with the silversmiths that occurred uh, in Ephesus as the Apostle Paul is cutting into their prophet line as they're making these little idols to the, the temple of Diana, to her likeness, to Artemis, uh, the goddess of fertility, as we shared this morning uh, an, an incredible likeness to our world, obsessed, possessed, if you will, uh, with sexuality. That was the world that Paul was ministering in at the same time. Uh, those 2,000 intervening years, uh, not much has changed. Amen? So like Paul, we still have the opportunity to preach the gospel in a world that's distracted, And the Apostle Paul now steps into this place where he is knowingly putting himself in harm's way. Up to this point, harm has come, but it's come, in essence, uh, behind the scenes. Now it's going to be widely known. 
And so Paul called the disciples to himself and embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. And now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, uh, the main reason that I was in El Salvador just yesterday, uh, the main reason that we left Friday night to go to encourage, to speak words of comfort and speak words of encouragement, part of the job of every pastor is to make sure that people are encouraged in God's word. Uh, to speak to them many words and, and to give them the truth so that they have the truth to cling to in those times of need. The Apostle Paul gives us that example here. And he encouraged them with many words. And he came to Greece and stayed there for three months. And, and when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, and again, remember, I'll throw up a map here in a little bit, but remember that this, this whole ministry takes place, in essence, around the Aegean Sea. So the Mediterranean lies to the south of where the Apostle is now, uh, the head of the Mediterranean, uh, Caesarea Philippi, is the place that he will tra- travel to and from when he leaves, in essence, Jerusalem. It's the port city, some 65 miles north of Jerusalem along the coast, so uh, to the west of Jerusalem. But all of these things have a couple of different ways that they could have occurred. And so Paul is going to make mention of sailing across or actually taking the journey on foot. But remember, these are journeys largely of hundreds of miles, not thousands of miles. Many of these cities are relatively close one to another, their day's journey. And so very often it made more sense to travel on foot. And so in some of this particular Uh, passage, we're going to see Paul walking from the closer cities, and then he will sail across the Aegean Sea. And and so he spends three months, and as he's plotted against by the Jewish religious leadership, remember this is not all Jews, Uh, it was the Jewish religious leadership, it was those that were clinging desperately to the Old Covenant, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so you can kind of see his route of transit. He's going across the northern portion of Greece, which would have been Macedonia. He's been down towards Athens and Corinth, which they're down on the very end of the Isthmus. And the area of Acacia is really almost like an island. It's simply separated by a very tiny four-mile-wide isthmus that is the home of Corinth. Uh, there is now a canal that actually cuts through uh, that particular isthmus, and so it technically is now actually an island, the area that's called Acacia. And, and so he's wandering around and kind of finishing up his business. As he decided to return through Macedonia, and Sopater of Berea accompan- accompanied him to Asia, and also Aristarchus, Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby. Now, Gaius of Derby is an interesting guy. Uh, his, his primary ministry was to come alongside and to help. And so many of these men had an effect in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, they weren't necessarily all preachers, though we're going to see many of them called elders, which would lead us to believe that they were able to teach. They considered a privilege to be engaged in the ministry of simply aiding this great apostle to get from place to place. This man who would share the word, there is such a place in the church for people to use the gifts that they have to enable ministry to happen. And those gifts are varied. We have a team right now. I saw a couple of pictures uh, from the team that's at uh, Calvary Chapel of Sunsal. 
and they've already laid a floor in a bedroom. They're laying a floor in a kitchen. They got halfway through that. Those are gifts that are valuable to the kingdom. Uh, You can be a tile setter for Christ. You can be a concrete mason for Christ. You can be a seamstress for Christ. You can be a baker for Christ. Uh, You can simply provide meals for someone who's hungry for Christ. You You can give to the ends that other people can go for Christ. Don't limit ministry simply to those things that are we would call ministry like preaching and teaching. Ministers of the gospel of Christ come in all flavors, shapes, and sizes with varying degrees. There are some in this body that have the gift of giving. I was able to to meet with my brothers from Nicaragua yesterday and, and to share with them a gift that was given from here. And I was able to simply be a messenger really of someone else's heart. And as that gift was given, I'm watching these grown men weep like children that someone would care for them. The Apostle Paul has taken up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. He's going to take that back. Don't isolate ministry to simply those who are able to teach. A lot of ministry happens in simply meeting the needs of people. So don't isolate ministry to a very narrow bandwidth. Virtually anything can be done in the name of the Lord if it's for His glory. And so remember that as you read these things. Sometimes people get depressed that God's not given them maybe the gift of teaching or preaching. Maybe they're just simply not good at study. You know, there are some of us who are kind of weird and we actually enjoy just sitting there endlessly reading books. I actually enjoy it. It's one of those things I get into the text and I'm just like, it's like there's something that happens. But not everyone's wired that way. And there are some people that just simply love to go and, and say, look, can I help you with that? That's the gift of hospitality. It's a beautiful gift. And many of these people had those other gifts. Gaius of Derby and Timothy. And we know Timothy is basically Paul's understudy. And Tychicus. Tychicus is another man who's been trained up and he's growing in ministry. But he's not exactly there yet. And Trophimus of Asia. And these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. And there's an interesting phrase there because it seems to indicate in the original language that these men were trailblazers. That phrase going ahead means that they took the time to kind of go spy out the land and to get things ready. And that's not to pre-preach Paul's message. That's not to pre-teach the things that God's going to use Paul to do. That's to go and prepare the way. And so here these men go, and they're, they're getting there ahead of time and preparing the ground, making sure that, in essence, Paul had a place to stay, had something to eat, was going to be able to minister somewhere to someone. Very valuable gifts. And so as Luke begins to follow basically the same pattern Uh, that he used in the life of Jesus. We're now getting to that place that we would call uh, the last weeks of Jesus' life. These are the last weeks and months of the Apostle Paul's life. And so, very similar pattern. As much as Jesus had set his face like flint on, on Jerusalem, nothing could stop him. And we'll see this as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday together. 
But, but he now begins this journey of farewell. He, he, he knows that this is going to be his last time. He's going to see some of these people never again. And so it's an important time to connect with them and to share those truths that are so necessary that we translate. As I was sharing with some of the guys at the pastor's conference yesterday, many of them I've seen before. Some of them were new. But as I'm sharing with them, we always kind of end, you know, I'll see you here or there or in the air. Uh, We really don't know if we're ever going to see one another again on this earth, but we do know that we will see one another again. Amen? That's that type of certainty that we have to have when we're doing the things of the Lord. You, You see, sometimes we get hung up too much in the here and now, and sometimes we get hung up too much in the hereafter. We need to simply leave all of those time frames in the hands of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul does that. He's not concerned too much about that day, but he has it in view. He's not so much concerned about just tomorrow. He's concerned about eternity. So he's keeping eternity in view. There's a story of D.L. Moody when he first traveled to England uh, in 1867. And and he was so prone to seasickness that when he got done with his campaign in London, he said goodbye to people and he said, I do not expect to ever visit this country again, so this is our final goodbye. He made five more trips in his lifetime. And so even the great D.L. Moody sometimes misses whether you know, you're, you're going to ever see someone again. Uh, he actually intended to not go back to London because he hated being on a ship. But God in his sovereign plans moved him to go anyway against that hardship. And for those of you that get motion sick, you know, I have people all the time, I'd love to go on a missions trip, but I can't fly. You know, I, I'd, I'd love to travel in a car, but I, I get car sick. There, there are people that are, that are kind of hemmed in uh, by the things in their life. And so we see two things here. We see one who's unafraid. Paul's just like, I'm going to go. I don't care what the cost is. And we see those that take the little easier route and set the stage. There's place for both in life. We need trailblazers to go ahead, and we need those steadfast ones that will go and do no matter what. Expected to meet Titus at Troas. And in essence, there's really two main purposes in this. And one of them we've explained already. He wants to encourage, he wants to strengthen the saints. He's simply going to build up the body of Christ. I had an interesting thing that happened to me on Friday as I'm talking with a, a couple of pastors from a church that uh, were in Guatemala, and I'm, I'm speaking to them, and, and they asked me a question, you know, why are you here? And I said, to just simply encourage and, and to build up. And, and they said, no, why are you here? And I said, no, really, to encourage and to build up. He says, but, but what's in it for you? And I said, absolutely nothing. And they started to weep. I said, in fact, the church paid my way to be here. Uh, We've actually paid for you to be here. And they just began to weep. Because you cannot underestimate the gift of encouragement. You cannot underestimate the gift of encouragement. To just simply let someone know that the infinite God of heaven has seen their need And he has sent you to meet that need. 
Now, you, you may look at, well, I'm not, I don't know if I can do that. Yes, you can. If you can speak words of kindness, you can be an encourager. If you can hold someone's hand, you can be an encourager. If you can maybe buy somebody's lunch, you can be an encourager. Perhaps you just simply being there in the presence of someone who did not expect to see you will be an encouragement. Please exercise the gift of encouragement every opportunity you get. It strengthens the body of Christ. It builds them up. It gives them, maybe it gives them hope for one more day. And that one more day, God sends someone else with the gift of encouragement for the next day. Do not underestimate the gift of encouragement. It's so underlooked in the church. People forget what simple kindness can do. Just a word here or there, that's all it takes. The second purpose was a more practical one. It was to take up a collection, and we find that in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 16, also in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul was kind of on a mission to help build up the churches and to take care of some needs. One of the great responsibilities we have as a large ministry that has some resources is to not hoard them up for us. God has not given all that he's given to us so that we can be healthy, wealthy, fat, and wise. He's he's given us those resources so that we can enlarge the borders of the tent stakes of this ministry to include people who do not have what we do. And so, like the Apostle Paul, one of the things that we always try and do is when we travel, we go with a uh, an, uh, an amount of money that is completely unaccounted for, and we simply find needs and bless people. Pastor Pat is doing that right now in Sunzal. Pastor Alex is doing that in Michoacan. They've gone with a gift, and when there's something that they see that is obviously of the Lord, they are instructed to take care of that. Not because we've been asked, but because we care. Because it's part of what we should do as a church with resources. And I think if every church would take seriously the outreach of the church instead of the inreach of the church, the body of Christ would be much better off for it. We are an extension of the Lord's hands, and we must not forget that. What we have, we only have on loan from Jesus. Amen? You don't own anything. When you leave here to go there, the only thing you're taking with you is people. Amen? Can't take any of the stuff. So use the stuff here for the Lord. What we find here is a going away service. And in it we see a central message. And that message is really that everything is the Lord. So let's look at this. Verse 6. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And so after Passover, he had hoped to spend that Passover in Jerusalem. He does not make it there. But in five days, they joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. And so some of these details seem to be meaningless, but it's giving us the picture that he's traveling by foot. He's actually walking some of this journey. 
He's going to sail some of it, but he's going to travel between the cities on foot. And now on the first day of the week, sometimes people will ask, well, why do you celebrate, why do you come to meet together uh, on Sunday as opposed to the Sabbath? It's very easy. Throughout the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we find the body of Christ gathering together on the first day of the week. They were celebrating the birth of the church, and they were celebrating Pentecost. Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, Sunday, and Pentecost occurred on the first day of the week, Sunday. And so we generally celebrate on Sunday. Though here in this church, we celebrate, like Paul said, that doesn't really matter to me, I'm going to celebrate every day of the week, which is what we basically do here. So they stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, and he's literally talking about a meal at this point in time, though after every meal, the first century church, a lot of times, would actually have communion. So it probably means both. Uh, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, I'm not planning on doing that tonight. Uh, But then... People weren't looking forward to going watching the end of part of the NCAA March Madness games. Uh, they weren't going home to, you know, check in on their computer and see what was going on in the world. Uh, this was a big deal. Gathering together as the church took precedent over everything. And thank you for being here tonight. Because this is what the church did at that time. They took every occasion to get together, and very often they shared a meal, they shared communion, and they shared in the Word. And so Paul begins this message. He believes he's not going to see him again, and it goes until midnight. Now, they normally would have began to eat in the late afternoon, early evening, so this is probably a five-hour church service. Uh, We're going to see a young man that can't quite handle that. And there were many lamps in the upper room, where they were gathered together, so we know it's after dark. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. Now the terms that are used here means that this young man was probably a teenager. We'll get to that in a moment. And he had been working, because at that point in time, a Jewish man became a man at 12, began to work at a very young age, and by what we would call the teenage years, they had a full-blown job. And so this young man is sinking into a deep sleep, and he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That's why we don't have open windows here. But Paul went down and fell on him. Sometimes we turn up the AC just to make sure everybody stays awake. And Paul goes down and he falls on this guy. And embracing him, he said, Do not trouble yourself, for his life is in him. Now it's interesting because we we see that it was clear that this man was dead. And so he's been raised to life. The Apostle Paul Uh, simply goes and and lays hands on him and he he raises up. And now when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten and talked for a long while, even until daybreak, and he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. And so this kind of funny scene, 
You know, here this Bible study is at that time. Remember, no AC, Middle East. It appears from the time of year because of the way that the sailing was going and the prevailing winds and how they sailed easy one way and not the other, that we know this was likely in the summertime. So it was hot. Uh, they're inside of a, of, of a room that likely was quite warm. And if you've ever had a meal and then been in a room that's warm, uh, one of the things that we as pastors never want to do, you never want to teach the first study after lunch at a conference. Because here's what you get. <laughs> Everybody, they're, they're like they're digesting their food. It's usually warm. It's the middle of the day. And people go unconscious on you. Well, that happens to this man. He falls out the window. But there are some lessons here. And some things that are of the Lord's. And to begin with, they give credit that this is the Lord's day. Every day is the Lord's day. Amen? Every day is the Lord's day. And so they're, they're meeting uh, on the Lord's day. And, and as the Spirit came upon them at Pentecost, and as they celebrated uh, the day that Christ rose, they were gathering together on the Lord's day. And they honored the Lord on the Lord's day. You know, so often we get so completely busy that for some people the Lord's day is an hour. I would highly suggest that we think about the Lord's day as a day that's set apart for the Lord. It can be family time. It can be time for you to just simply rest. It can be a Sabbath uh, to you. But give time to the Lord because every day is His and if you take all seven days for you, you're going to find out you're going to be uh, without the influence uh, of the Lord in its fullness. So this was the Lord's day. And it was also the Lord's people. They're gathered together. They're meeting for the sole purpose of being together as the body of Christ. And so as they do gather together, uh, they're at this love feast. So it was also the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, these things, everything at that day and time in the church, people recognized it was the Lord's. It's a healthy place for us to go. As the Apostle Paul is teaching, he's teaching the Lord's message. He's given, he said, look, here's the word of the Lord for you. The word of God is always what we should be declaring in our public gatherings. It's the reason that we do what we do the way we do it here at Calvary Chapel. We, We want people to know God's word. My words have No power whatsoever to change anybody's life. But God's word does. And so the point is to share God's word. To do that, sometimes a little bit of help of explanation is good, and maybe God could use me to do that. But the focus is his word. The truth comes from his word. The illustrations may be the thoughts of experience. They could be some way for you to relate to it. But it is the Lord's message that we want to share. That was the message that was being shared that day. And then finally, we see the Lord's power in all of this here in these verses. Eutychus' name actually means fortunate. You talk about fortunate. If you plunge out of a window three stories and land on your head, uh, that is usually fatal. Uh, Connie and I's son, Brandon, uh, fell out of a window from about 10 feet headfirst onto concrete. Uh, and we were told that he would be a vegetable, that he wouldn't ever be able to, to really do anything in life. They were preparing us 
for his death. They said, we're not sure he's going to live. So it's a serious thing to fall 30 feet. And of course, that didn't happen because he's our high school pastor and he can lead worship and he's graduated from college. So, you know, the Lord raised him up as well. But in this picture, we see the power of the Lord. Connie and I have seen the power of the Lord. God has power still to this day to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to cause the lame to walk. God's still in that business. You know, sometimes we, we kind of, you know, we've almost dumbed down the Lord to our, our modern world to where, well, if he doesn't do things according to science, he can't do them. Look, God's still a miracle-working God. And he still has the power to do anything he wants to do, including raise the dead. And you better say amen to that, because one day he's going to raise you from the dead. Amen? I don't want to be too hard on poor Eutychus. He, he was working. His, the words that are used here to describe him, there are two actual words for young man. One, one, of, one of them is neanus. Neanus means kind of like that older young person. We'd call them a millennial. Someone who's probably in their 20s. Uh, they've been around a while, but they're still young relative to someone who's of old age. But the, the word that's used here is this pais. And, and that's someone who's still a teenager. So this guy's, give him credit, man. He's sitting in the window. He's listening to a Bible study. He's a young guy. He's got his focus right. He's just tired. So it's not like he's not paying attention to the message. It actually seems to indicate in the Greek verb, Greek verb that's used here that he was gradually overcome. It's kind of like, I'm trying to stay away. Have any of you ever had that? You're like, you know you're falling asleep, and you're like doing everything you can, and you like hold your eyes wide open. You know, you sit there and you stare, you, you start, you know, you slap yourself a couple times. It seems as that's what's happening to Eutychus. He's in the window, he's like whacking himself, he's over there trying to get a little breeze in his face. I don't know how many of you have ever, you know, been, if you've ever worked a graveyard shift. Uh, when I was in college, I worked graveyard at San Diego International Airport. And, and I lived in La Mesa at the time, in, in, which is about 20 miles away. And, and Mission Valley gets a very foggy part of the year. And, and I remember I, I went from college class to my job, and it's now, it's like 3 in the morning. And, and I'm, I'm driving, and I'm like, you know, I got my head out the window. I'm, I'm like driving like this the next thing i know i see the guardrail coming at me i had actually fallen asleep even though i was completely aware that i was falling asleep so that's for eutychus he's like trying to listen he really wants to hear the message that the apostles preaching uh, but even his his desire to do that cost him his life he, he plunges out the window, and the, the picture for us is, you know, this, this guy's in a five-hour church service, and he falls asleep and is killed and is raised from the dead. I think we can do a better job uh, of being a little more dedicated to our times of study with the Lord. You know, maybe sometimes we ought to maybe do a few other things a little less and do some of the things of the Lord maybe a little more. And if you fall asleep, I promise not to throw anything at you. And if you die, we'll raise you from the dead if we can. Just don't hang out any windows while you're here at church. 
And the map that you have before you on the screen really gives this final journey. And you can kind of see that, that in a sense, where it starts uh, is, is there in Antioch. And Paul takes this journey across what would be uh, the very edge of Syria, across modern-day Turkey, uh, that area that's called Asia, Galatia to the north, Cappadocia. Uh, but he's really primarily focusing on this this loop that doubles around the Aegean Sea. And so this is where he's at. It's where all these uh, places are. And so we pick up the story here in verse 13. And then uh, we went ahead to the, to the ship and sailed across to Asos. They're intending to take Paul on board. For he had so given us orders, intending himself to go on foot. And so he's going to take a little bit of a journey, go from place to place, talk to people while he's doing that. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. And we sailed from there and the next day came to Chios. And the following day arrived at Samos. Now Samos, these are islands that are in the Aegean Sea, but on the Asian coast. And so the opposite side... Uh, is is where you find Corinth and Athens over on the peninsula. Uh, and then Acacia is that, that, in essence, nearly an island uh, that is the westernmost part uh, of what we would call Greece. He stayed at Tragelium, and the next day came to Miletus. And for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And so here, a little bit of history of the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he, he begins kind of this, this combination of walking and, and, and sailing. And the picture is this. You know, sometimes the very best way is to travel, and I just had this experience, uh, there, there are times when you can fly from place to place, but it actually takes you longer to fly from place to place than it does to actually drive because it takes you three, four hours in every airport, basically internationally. You have to get there several hours early and you have to go through all the immigration things and sometimes it's just better to travel on foot or maybe by car. And so the Apostle Paul is using wisdom here. He, he's beginning to travel these journeys in a way to make the very best of his time. The other thing that happens, and, and again, I just had this happen this last couple of days, you, you get a lot of fellowship when you're on the way. I had some incredible fellowship just in the car with Pastor Jorge and Pastor Chet. And then we would get in the van. We actually had a, a van at our disposal. We've got five or six people in there. And so sometimes the journey is actually the ministry. Paul takes advantage of the journey to do ministry. As I was flying back yesterday, late afternoon, early evening, I'm doing ministry on the plane. I'm talking to this guy for two hours about everything from creation science to the book of Revelation. And I'm sharing with this, this guy, John, and it's like, you know, we were just having a, a great time. He said, well, I grew up in the Presbyterian church. So I really haven't been going to church. And he just had all these questions. And so the journey itself is ministry. I was primarily going to minister to another group of people. But I got an opportunity on the way to do ministry. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Uh, he, he was going to sail, but he decided it would be better to walk. He'd actually be able to talk to a few more people. On the boat, you're confined to whoever's on the boat. And so he, wanting to do ministry, makes it a little more difficult on himself. 
to have the ability to do that ministry. Here in the book of Acts, uh, there are really actually eight messages that are clearly defined in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul gives. And it's a super buried group of people. Uh, he ministers in a, in a number of Jewish synagogues. He ministers to Gentiles. He ministers to church leaders. He actually ministers to an angry Jewish mob. He ministers to a Jewish council. He ministers to a whole group of theologians of different, different religions. On the Oropagus, he, he ministers to government officials. He takes every opportunity to preach the word. Doesn't matter where he's at, wherever he's at, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. A beautiful picture of how we ought to conduct ourselves. In this message that we have before us, there are really three parts divided up most of the remaining part of this, this chapter. He's going to review the past and how things happened, picking up in verse 18. We'll get to that in a moment. He's then going to talk about the present, the situation that he's in, and then finally about the future. But he was so compelled in the things of ministry that, that he wanted to make sure everybody was engaged in, in what he was saying. And so he takes each opportunity as an individual group of people to be able to minister to them right where they're at. Verse 18 as he looks at the past. And when they had come to him, they said to him, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I've always lived among you. And so he's talking about his past life. He says, I've preached the gospel every time we've gotten here. You know me, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me in the plotting of the Jews. Now remember, he's being brutally honest when he says in the plotting of the Jews. Remember, he's said in, previously, I would that I myself were cut off. I would wish that I would die that my own Jewish people would know Messiah. So he's saying, look, I, I am grieved by all of this. It, it gets to the depths of my soul. What's happened in the past makes my heart break. How he kept back nothing that was helpful, but how I proclaimed to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you can't know the good news without knowing the bad news. People need to know what they're repenting of if they're going to repent. So if they don't know they're a sinner, they really can't meet the Savior. And so Paul does both those things. He says, look, this, this is the problem, and here's the answer. That's the full counsel of God's gospel. You tell people the problem, and you give them the answer. You let them know that these things that they're engaged in, let, let, me, let me give you an example. You know, very often, as, as we saw this morning, you're going to come across people who have the wrong idea of human sexuality. And when you share with them the truth then share with them the answer to that falsehood that they're living in. You see, the answer is the grace of God. You're not going to have a whole lot of victory if you just, you know, nobody really likes to have their problems point out and then be left in their problems. You've got to tell them what's wrong and then tell them how to get right. The Apostle Paul does that. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The repentance and the faith are coupled. 
And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. He he makes an honest assessment of the past. He he says, this is what I've been doing. This is why I've been doing it. My life has been lived as exemplary a manner as I possibly can. I've been consistent in that. Family, it is so important for us as the church to live lives that are consistent. Not up and down. Not one day I'm walking with Jesus, the next day I'm not. But consistent. Because people look at our lives over time. Nobody believes initially anyone saying anything if they only get a little tiny window. Because anybody can say anything and make it good for a few moments. But that consistency is what they're looking for. Then it's real to someone. If you say you have, you know, you've got a sweet spirit and, a, and you don't have a temper problem. Well, if you say that, and then the following moment you follow it up with a a line of ranting and raving, uh, they're not going to believe that what you first said is true. But if over time they see you constantly dealing with people in love and care and concern, and there's some consistency, then they believe that that's truly the character that you have. Paul was like that. He was like that in his past. The second part, picking up in verse 23, was a testimony of the present, the work that was going on at that time. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that the chains and tribulations await me. And then he says one of the most profound things we find in the book of Acts. Now remember what we've already seen. Paul's been stoned and left for dead. He's been beat up. He, he's, you know, the people that he loves have been after him. Uh, he's had a rough time. But he says, none of these things move me. All that stuff isn't going to make me quit preaching Christ. None of that's going to push me away from telling people the truth, that God loves them. No matter what they do to me, I'm going to keep consistent to the message of the gospel, which is Christ came to die that people might be saved. He said, I'm not going to be moved. He says, none of these things move me. And he gives us a whole litany of reasons why. And we'll look at each of these pictures individually. One, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish the race with joy, the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, I now know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. He says, look, I I know I'm done. My life is at its end. It's so important to have the right view of yourself in the present. Look, I don't know how much time I have on this earth. I would like to think maybe it's another 20 years or so. But it might be another 20 seconds. I've had a lot of bacon. And I like bacon. You know, my coronary arteries may be in worse shape than the doctors think. I don't know. I just know I want to be consistent. I want to finish well. I want my life to have counted for the kingdom. He says, for indeed I now know that 
I have gone among you, and I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, and I will see your face no more. Then therefore I testify to you this day. You can see the present in view that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. He says, I've done everything I can to make sure that wherever I have gone, the gospel's been preached, and I don't myself know of anyone who didn't understand that truth having met me and talked to me. I'm innocent of their, their eternal destiny. I've preached the gospel faithfully. What a beautiful picture for us. You know, it's a grievous thing when you have family members and you get to that place in life where those last days are upon you. You do not want to leave that situation up to chance. You want to have preached the gospel faithfully so that you know that that blood is not on your hands. That you've told them the truth. I very often get, you know, people will come for counsel and they'll say, you know, my father's dying or my mother's dying or my aunt or my uncle's dying, someone that they love, it doesn't have long. I say, but I don't want to offend them. They've told me they don't want to hear about Jesus. You know what I say to them? You tell them about Jesus anyway. Because if they hate you in the here and now, but you get to see them in the hereafter, that's a win. You know, you you may not have another time. That doesn't mean you beat somebody over the head. That simply means, look, I believe Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. And I need to share with you that your eternal destiny lies in the decision that you will make either for or against Christ. And so I love you enough to have these last few minutes with you, this last meeting with you, maybe you won't like what I'll say, but when I leave here, you have the truth in your mind and you have it available for a decision. Don't miss that opportunity. That goes with friends. I have a close friend who's, who we have a mutual friend. That friend is now home with Jesus. But that friend asked me, you know, it's, it's like every time I talk to Mike, you know, he just never wants to hear the gospel message. I was very concerned. I, I just, you know, I don't want to have a contentious argument with him again about Jesus. And the last time they met, he shared the Lord with him. And he received Christ on that day, and he was dead a week later. Amen? Just do it. It's okay. God's got your back. You have all eternity to make up for sharing the gospel. And I'm pretty sure there's not going to be anything to be making up for. Amen? They're going to be going, thank you. Thank you that you loved me enough to make me mad in this life so that I could be glad in the next. Amen? For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We, we tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now we do that lovingly. We do that kindly. But it's the truth nonetheless. If you tell a lie nicely, it's still a lie. Amen? You can be, well, you know, God just loves you, so do whatever you want. That's really nice. But it's really wrong. And it leaves people with untruth in their life. 
So tell them the truth nicely. Man, I love you. But God's Word says if you do these things, and you take them to that, take them to Romans 1, or you take them to 1 Corinthians 6, and you sit down with them, you take them to the book of Galatians, you say, look, I'm not picking on you. But here's what the Bible says about what you're doing. You may make them really upset, but you can tell them that truth nicely. Say, because I love you, I'm willing to, to be an enemy to you right now because faithful are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. I don't want to be your enemy by lying to you. So I'm going to tell you the truth. The whole counsel of God. Paul uses six graphic pictures here, and we'll cover them quickly. The things that can move us. Paul saw himself, number one there in verse 24, as an accountant. He examines his liabilities, he examines his assets, and he decided to put Jesus Christ ahead of everything. He says, my main goal is to represent Jesus. It's not to make friends. It's not to make enemies either. I'm not trying to have everyone mad at me. But my main goal, the main thing I'm here for, is to make sure people know about Jesus. Because he knew one day his books were going to get reckoned. Someone was going to examine the account of his life. His name is Jesus at the Bema seat. Whether good or bad, whatever was done, one day Paul was going to stand before the grand accountant and give an account for everything that he did. And he says, I want to make sure my books are square, so Christ is first. The second thing, he saw himself as a runner. He wanted to finish the course in my life, the course of my ministry. He says, I want to finish it well. I want to actually finish the race. For about half of my life, I was a long-distance runner. Very few races did I ever not finish. I finished some limping, but I wanted to finish because I hated the thought of being seen as a quitter. It just grated against me. Finishing matters, family. And it surely matters in the kingdom of God. It's not just getting into the race. Anybody can get, you can pay the fees and enter the New York City Marathon. You can pay the fees and enter the Boston Marathon. You can pay the fees and enter all kinds of races and you can get a bib, you can get a number, you can even get something that says on your hat, I participated in the marathon. But it doesn't mean you're going to finish. You want to get in the race to finish. The Apostle Paul says, look, I want to finish this race, this course that God has set before me. He would not be moved from finishing the race. He saw himself as a steward. A steward is simply an overseer of someone else's things. Paul realized the gospel was given to him, and he wanted to be faithful with what he was given. And so he says, look, I've received these things from the Lord, and they're not mine, so I need to use them properly according to the one who gave them to me, which was Jesus. So he says, I want to be faithful to that, because someday I'm going to give an account for what I did with my master's things. And in this case, the gospel was in view. He wouldn't be moved away from using the gospel because the master gave it to him. A fourth thing, 
that of a witness, someone who testifies in behalf. It would be like a professional, uh, maybe someone who's a forensics expert that goes into court and testifies on a specific thing. You've been brought in as a witness, and you must speak the truth about your area of science. Maybe it's DNA evidence. You are commanded as a witness to tell the truth. And Paul says, look, I can't do anything but tell the truth. I am a witness to the majesty of God. I am a witness to the gospel of God. And I have to take this seriously. I can't go in and make up my own story. Who he says, I won't be moved from being a solid witness of the truth. A fifth thing. He saw himself as a herald. He uses the word preach. But someone preaches to announce In other words, there's a truth that needs to be known and someone has to speak it. And Paul says, I won't be moved from speaking what I know I need to speak, no matter what the cost. And finally, the last thing, and really the most serious, we actually see it a little bit later here as we finish up this chapter, but it's being a faithful watchman. A watchman was a very important position in the history of the nation Israel. The walls of any city... Uh, generally were the kind of the last line of defense against the greatest enemy. And so almost all cities were either walled or they were the outer walls of the homes of that city. But on top of those walls were normally ramparts. If you traveled to Jerusalem, though you're looking at the, the Ottoman walls from the 14 to 1600, you can still see the ancient walls, the broad wall, the city of Jerusalem. And along that wall, placed in intervals to where they could see specific areas where the enemy might come, were the watchmen. And the watchmen were required to stay awake, and they were there day and night, and their sole duty was to warn of the enemy. And to fail to do that was under the penalty of death, by the way. And Paul said, look, I'm a watchman for the kingdom. I can't see danger coming and just stand here and go, well, I... Hope you don't get killed. He had to herald that danger. He said, so I'm not going to be moved from being a watchman. Nobody's going to tell me that I can't tell you the truth, that I can't stay on the wall. And if I see something coming, I'm going to tell you what it is that's wrong. It's a group of servicemen who asked a, a new chaplain in the U.S. Navy. And sadly, this is a true story. And he asked the question of this new chaplain if he believed that heaven and hell were both real. He says, well, I believe in heaven, but I do not believe in hell. They replied back to him and says, well, we don't want you as our chaplain. You're wasting our time. If there's no hell, we don't need you. If there is a hell, then you're leading us astray. In either case, we don't need you. You see, a watchman tells both sides of the story. You have to tell that there is a heaven, and you have to tell that there is a hell, but you've got to tell. You've got to be engaged in the business of saying, look, this is the truth, here's the danger, and the danger is unless you repent of your sins, you will perish. And finally, we see the, the warning about the future that was already spoken of. And therefore take heed to yourselves, it says in verse 28, and to all the flock among you which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the shepherd of the church of God, 
which he purchased with his own blood. That's serious wording, amen? Look, you, you've been placed over the church that Christ purchased with his own blood. It angers me beyond belief to listen to some of the garbage that is spoken from the pulpits of the churches of America that Christ died for and the spew that comes out that is not true, that that is pointed towards the sheep that Christ died for. You better be careful. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock. And also among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. In other words, there will be churches, there will be pastors, there will be preachers who will not preach the real gospel, who will not call sin, sin, who will deceive people into believing that there's some other way that you can get right with God. And they will not teach the truth. They'll try and draw people away from themselves. And sometimes those churches are huge. Because they've taken the gospel and they've made it into a feel-good message that says, well, there's nothing to repent of. You must repent to be saved. You cannot be saved without repentance. Let me make that very clear. If you do not confess your sin, then your sin is not forgiven. And consequently, you're not cleansed. The church that preaches the feel-good message is preaching a false gospel. You have to repent. Now, the grace of God is greater than all of your sin, but you've got to call it sin, and you've got to say you're sorry, and you need to go the other way. However imperfectly you might do that. And therefore watch, and remember that for three days I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day. And there it is, the watchman, in tears. And so now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my own necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way, laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And when he had said all these things, he knelt down and he prayed for them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him and sorrowed most for all the words which he spoke that they would not see his face anymore, and they accompanied him to the ship. Family, there's dangers within, there's dangers without. A faithful pastor, the faithful shepherd, tells people the truth. As painful as that truth is at times, when you tell people the truth, they have the truth to work with. When you tell them the lie, they still have to find the truth. So when you have opportunity, you tell the truth. It's a serious thing to be a spiritual leader in the church of the living God. There are wolves. There are people who try and build up a name for themselves. There are people who are in it for the money. We have churches here in L.A. that are an abomination before the Lord. 
Any pastor that says he needs a six hundred, a sixty-five million dollar jet to get him around the country needs to needs to seriously go before the Lord and repent. Because no pastor needs his own sixty-five million dollar jet, and no church should provide it for him. We have to be wise. It's a holy calling, and it's a fearful thing. And so he names some some sins here. Verse 31, we see carelessness. Not staying alert. It says, watch, remember, take heed. The second sin is shallowness. You can't build the church of God on anything other than the deep roots of Christ. If you're not built on the gospel, you're not built on anything. All other ground, exactly as the hymn says, is sinking sand. He's the solid rock. We build on Him. We can't have shallowness. There's a danger of covetousness. Notice that these men were seeking to gain disciples so that they could have physical gain themselves. In other words, they were in it for the dough, for the cash. Pastor needs to live, generally speaking, in the same lifestyle as the people he's ministering to. The Apostle Paul is the chief example of that. It's not wrong for a pastor to take a salary, but that salary ought to be explainable within the context of those that are being ministered to. Exorbitant salaries for pastors are not of God. No matter how much someone made, whine and complain and say, well, look how big the church is. But church is big, it's because God made it big, not because some man did. Amen? Church always belongs to God. Paul actually mentions laziness here. He's saying, look, I, I earned my own way as a tent maker. I've had the privilege of doing that myself. It's a wonderful thing. It's a tremendous example to the church. Sometimes we have the ability and, and the privilege to be able to be full-time ministers of the gospel. But a vast majority of pastors hold down nine-to-five jobs like everybody else and then pastor the church. And if that's what you need to do, that's what we should do. It's always a privilege to be able to do what I'm doing right now. And the moment a pastor forgets that, he needs to get out of the pulpit. And finally, Paul warned of selfishness. The ministry is about Christ. It's not about self. It's not about man. The church that is built on a personality, the church that is built on a person, is a church that's doomed to fail. A church that's built on Christ will stand. Because he is the only reason that any of us have any hope. And so we don't collect for ourselves. We collect so that we can give. We collect so that we can do the work of the ministry. We don't collect so that we can become healthy and wealthy. And so at the end of this, it was a difficult thing to say goodbye to somebody like that. I I wish that it would be a difficult thing to say goodbye to all pastors. But unfortunately, it's not. There are some that it's real easy to say goodbye because they probably shouldn't have ever been in the ministry in the first place. 
May it never be like that for us. May we keep Christ the center of the ministry. Amen? Worship team's going to come back out. Pastors are going to come forward. They'll be available for prayer. If you have something that's on your heart, on your mind, just come forward and be prayed for. It is a privilege to share God's Word with you. It is an honor to be here as the pastor of this church. It is an honor for me. It is an honor for our family to serve alongside of so many wonderful saints. And I pray that my life is consistent. That my life is an example. That what comes from this pulpit is truth. Because I take it seriously. And that nothing is ever done that shames the Lord in this house. Would you stand and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of the great apostle. Lord, the apostle Paul, as he lived his life, uh, a standard that is so high, uh, Lord, I shudder uh, to think of my own inadequacies and failures, even comparing myself to him much less to you, Jesus. Pray that you would be honored and glorified in what we do and say and how we do it here in this church. Pray that none of these things, nothing would move us. Lord, not the intensity of the race, not the accounting, not the preaching, not the teaching, not the watching. Lord, we pray uh, that you would be the center, you would be the focus and that you would be blessed as you, as you look at us as your people, as your church, that you'd smile from heaven and be able to say, well done. We bless you. We honor you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And God's people all said, Amen.